Hi there, it's Melvin. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the team over at Thryzer for supporting this month's podcast sessions. Thryzer is a payment platform that you have to check out if you are a private pay therapist and accepting out-of-network benefits. It basically helps clients save on therapy up front. Thryzer can help verify a client's out-of-network benefit ahead of the first session so that they get transparency up front on what their out-of-pocket costs will be. I'll tell you more about Thryzer here in the middle of our session, but if you go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, you actually end, then enter the code STC upon sign up, you get your first $2,500 in fees waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hi there, welcome to today's session of Selling the Couch. I hope that you're doing well, having a fantastic day. So today we are talking all about contracts and Securing contracts, whether it is through government or schools or some sort of other agencies or any of those things. Now, I don't know for about you, but when I usually think about private practice, I'm not thinking on the level of that there might be, for example, federal funding available that where I can create programs, where there might be programs, things like that, that need to be fulfilled. And so that's the conversation that we're having today. I'm joined by Dr. Ajeta Robinson. Ajeta is a dear friend, and we have gotten to know each other here over the past couple of years. And Ajeta has literally secured millions, if not tens of millions of dollars in in government contracts, both for her private practice, as, as well as working with other therapists and coaching them and mentoring them in order to do the same. Ajeta is a wealth of knowledge on a whole bunch of stuff. And today we're specifically talking about contracts. And some of the questions that were on my mind is, for example, how do you build relationships with certain government agencies, especially like IE, how do you sort of get in and into that inner circle? Um, I think you're going to be surprised with some of the answers and the response that Ajeta has in that, in with that question. And then we're, I'm going to, basically take a peek behind Ajeta's brain and we're going to say, ask this question around when she's looking at government or just contract opportunities just in general, what are the top three things that she's looking for? And then the best part is Ajeta jumped in and actually shared something that I didn't ask that I think uh, is actually really incredibly helpful because it particularly, it helps you if you think like something is like a contract's been handed out already and there's no other future opportunity with it, this strategy, I think, uh, really helps to think of it in a different way. And then we wrap up with kind of two things. The first is, what's the biggest mistake that Ajit has seen when working with our colleagues who want to start doing more contracts? What is that number one mistake? And then we wrap up with something a little bit more personal. You know, on the STC podcast, I've mentioned this off and on, but my Christian faith is something that's incredibly great, incredibly important, and that I'm grateful for. It informs a lot about how I build STC, the partnerships that we develop, the friendships, and all of that kind of stuff. And yet, it's something I don't often talk about. And so, Jen and I are actually just talking about that for a little bit about how her own faith impacts the contracts that she pursues 
and and how that sort of informs it. This is a wonderful conversation, especially if you are thinking about doing more contract work and and securing these larger contracts. And it's also a wonderful conversation if you have if you've never even thought about this as a clinician. So we'll jump right into today's conversation. Here's my conversation with Dr. Ajeda Robinson from ajedarobinson.com. Dr. Robinson, welcome to Selling the Couch. Thank you so much for having me. We made a joke right before we started that I would refer to Ajeda as Dr. Robinson just to, uh, you know, to rep our doctoral degrees here, right? So <laughs> that we have that we have labored over and gotten. First of all, I am just incredibly grateful for our friendship and, you know, more than anything, as a sister in the faith, as a colleague, you are someone that I just truly respect. And I think also in terms of how you think about business, but also how you think about business and life and sort of the intersection of that, right? And questions around enoughness and all of that stuff. Like I really, before we even jump into today's topic, I just wanted to say, Jetta, like I truly respect you and admire you and I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much. You know, that is totally mutual. And I'm always like, like (laughs) you're just so courageous and, and, and we were just talking about how that is so inspiring in so many ways and just nice to be able to kind of witness up close. And it's affirming in so many ways because it doesn't mean that we're not afraid. It just means that we're committed to doing it anyway. And I really appreciate having, you know, someone else in that space, you know, to be like, okay, this this actually matters and, and it's okay. And then you can like go run and hide for a little bit afterwards, but it's still necessary and important, you know, to lead in that way. So thank you. You're welcome. And uh, I think that's absolutely right. Like, I think there's a lot of conversation around charting your own path, but I think sometimes we forget that charting your own path often means it feels very isolating and scary. And you don't, you have some role models, but then you are kind of charting your own thing according to, you know, how things are. So yeah, uh, incredibly grateful for that. I mean, speaking of that, this is a topic that we're talking about today is contracts and securing contracts with schools, with government agencies, all of that kind of stuff. You know, I sent you some of these questions beforehand and I wrote the first question and it literally says, this is a dumb question, but what made you consider going down the path of contracts? Because most therapists in private practice are either thinking, I'm going to start a private practice, I'm going to do therapy, I'm going to do assessments, I'm going to do groups, or I might start a group practice, right? They're at least most of the therapists that I've met are not thinking like it on the contract level. So what made you go down that path? You know, really working with people that I felt really passionate about. You know, most of my work has been in marginalized communities, you know, African-American communities that really resemble com- the community that I grew up in that may have been, you know, the the working poor in a lot of ways. And so, and recognizing that a lot of the messaging that we received around uh, who comes to therapy didn't actually align for the people that I was actually working with or wanted to work with. And so, more specifically, you know, we see, receive a lot of messaging around, oh, if people value it, they'll they'll figure out how to pay for it. And I'm like, that's actually not what's happening in the communities that I do my best work with. They are so desperately looking for therapy, but with, you know, they have insurance, but most people don't take Medicaid, right? Or there's so many restrictions. And so I began thinking about who else has a vested interest in supporting this population? 
who has the, the resources and the commitment to creating access to care. And I kept coming back to our local and federal government. They have the taxpayer dollars. They're already servicing and connected to this community, and they have the responsibility to provide care. And what I found by like, you know, going down this kind of line of inquiry was that they were looking for people willing to contract with them to provide these services. And oftentimes the people who were repeatedly getting the contracts were social service agencies. And that's not a bad thing, but we also know that there's a lot of red tape that can happen there that can actually get in the way of the service being provided, which for me was the whole reason I went into private practice was I had worked in different institutions and, you know, hospital settings and, you know, and juvenile detention centers and medium security prisons. I mean, you name it. I'd worked in and I remember being frustrated saying, I just want to do therapy because I was spending so much of my time with paperwork and administration and meetings that I didn't feel like I was actually spending the time, um, an equitable amount of time actually doing the work. And that is what led me to be to open my own practice. And I knew that I'd have to figure out how to fund it differently. So I didn't just recreate the system that I was tired of. And so being able to pursue contracts and other funding sources is was for me to solve a problem that I felt really passionate about. Right. Like when I was in that situation before, uh, you know, getting my doctorate or getting having a successful career in corporate America, despite my need, I never would have been able to afford my own therapy. Right. Private pay fee. And it felt really important to to close that gap as much as possible. And so that for me is what drove me to look at other ways like who will pay for this? because the people who need it do not have the resources and it has nothing to do with it not being a priority, right? And so first it was disrupting the narrative and then two, identifying who was willing to help solve the problem. Uh, you said this phrase just now, which is, you know, who will pay for this? I think I think a lot about therapists who start private practices and they hit sort of these roadblocks and some will ask that question, who whereas others will say, no one will pay for this, therefore this isn't going to work out, right? What made you go down that path? Um, and it sounds like it's a lot of it is aligned with your own story. You know, I had been on the receiving end of funded programs, so I am an upward bound kid. And so that was a program that was funded at the college level for first generation college graduates. I'm the first in my family, in my nuclear family, to go to college, and I'm the only doctor in any generation and so I benefited a lot from these programs. And so I kind of just reverse engineered that. And I was like, OK, who funded the programs that I participated in? And I kept getting back to Department of Health and Human Services, Department of you know, Maternal Child Health. Right. Again, it kept taking me back to our local and federal governments. And, you know, and when you think about it, we're paying into these programs. And so they are creating social programs that benefit us. And so I it also helped when I was in my doc program that I have a background in research and had been on research projects, had written research grants. So I knew the procurement process, but primarily from a research perspective and not necessarily from a service-based perspective. But I will tell you that there's a lot of overlap and similarity, right? And so I leveraged what I knew in this one area. And I said, I wonder if it applied, right, to this area. And then I found our local procurement department and I went to every open house that I could find and they will teach you how to secure contracts from your local state and federal government. It's a tedious process. And so what I try and do is kind of expedite that. It's like, okay, here's all the things that I learned over, you know, the two years that it kind of took me to amass the knowledge that I needed. And so how do we kind of skip ahead and not actually skip steps, but condense the knowledge acquisition process because it was, there were some roadblocks, right? There was quite a few roadblocks because you don't know what you don't know. And that for me 
being a first-generation disruptor was a repeated experience of incurring the cost of what I didn't know I needed to know and not having access to the people who knew. And so I figured out how to leverage and access systems that were available for either free or low cost because I didn't have the money, right? And so I had more time than I had money. So it meant I had to go to open houses and network and build relationships and build my knowledge base about how to navigate these systems. And so that has been a beneficial and very uh, profitable avenue for building the practice, but also serving the population that we set out to serve, right? So goal met. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like a a mutual sort of win-win. I think, and it could just be me, but I think when I hear like government funding or any of these like institutions, one immediate thing is like, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy. How do you actually, like, somebody's just starting out listening to this. What is, like, the first logical step to, like, I don't I don't like this phrase, but, like, I just didn't know any other word, but, like, almost to, like, get in or form relationships with any of these places? I would say to be in the room. And so there's always, I always tell people to do this exercise. So search for county and just go to Google, search for county and procurement. And you can even search events. And so go to them. I find that I am almost always either the only mental health professional or one of very few. And everyone in the room, once you introduce yourself, generally recognizes that everyone has some relationship with mental health. And so I always think about what value can I add to the room and build relationships based on being able to add value before I make an ask. And so part of it was that I kept showing up. And so people recognize like, oh, Um, And now we're on a first name basis. My very first contract, I wasn't the primary contract holder. And I think sometimes we get in our way thinking that we have to be the one to hold the contract. I didn't know enough about the the full process to hold the contract. And so I was what they called a sub. I was a subcontractor and I had the specific skill set. And so the the contract was essentially to provide supervised, uh, court supervised or mandated visitation. And a subset of that contract was provide parent skills training, which my team was trained in doing. In my state, the state will train you to deliver the parent skills training. Many of us had already had that training based on, you know, I came from juvenile justice and, you know, a reentry program. And so I had already been doing that work for another agency. And so I already had that. My clinical director, who was my supervisor in those spaces, also had that training. And so we were equipped with the skill set because we didn't have the infrastructure to manage the, the award, the grant itself, or the contract rather. And so we came in and partnered and said, hey, we could deliver this specific part of the contract. And, and then in working with them, we learned how to submit the reporting because that's what the primary contract holder is responsible for, the reporting, the money, all of those pieces. We got to learn that with very little risk because we weren't responsible for it. And so for me, that's the the very essence of building profitable partnerships. It's mutually beneficial, it's profitable, and you get to stay in your zone of genius. And so how do you get really clear about what you do best and who else needs that? There are, and the state is looking to match vendors, right? And so they will match you with someone that is a huge corporation. So we have another contract with the pharmaceutical company. Again, we're not the primary. But in the contract, it required them to partner with someone that had small business and minority business certifications. And so the first step would be to be in the room. And the second step is to get your business certifications. It gives you an advantage when you go to compete for contracts. In my state, there's 20% of all contracts that are set aside to folks that are designated as disadvantaged business owners 
small businesses, veterans, women-owned businesses, there's like five certifications that you can qualify for. And they're set aside specifically for those folks where you don't even have to compete with anyone else, right? We've won contracts that no one else met the criteria for because we were well-positioned and what we could offer was well-described in the vendor database and they approached us. And so those are some of the things that I uh, you know, teach therapists to do so that there aren't enough of us and they're looking for us and they may not know where to find you, right? Especially if you're not waving your hand saying, hey, I can do this work. I'm interested in doing this work. And so those are some of the things that I recommend that anyone that's interested kind of do those pieces because they will absolutely give you a a way to get in without the risk of what if you mismanage this contract? I knew nothing about grant management from that side of it when we got started. And I didn't have to know. I partnered with someone that had been doing it for decades, right? Yeah. You said a couple of really good stuff here. So one, I think I just kept thinking about the humility that it is required in those initial steps. Uh, And in fact, it's actually a very wise thing to to be a subcontractor in one of these initial contracts and ideally aligning with somebody that's done it for a long time so you actually understand the entire process and it's not like a, like a as big of a lift as it could have been. The second question I had is again like a silly question are these it sounds like these credentials like these certifications are at the state level is that right? Your certification is issued at the state level but they are federally recognized. And so you do have to get certified at the state level. You want to get certified at the state level. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to get certified at the state level. And then it positions you when you go after federal and government contracts, federal government contracts specifically, or foundational foundation contracts. It absolutely gives you, it just opens the playing field, um, not only for, for government contracts, but any, really any contract where there's public dollars tied to it. So our school contracts, if you, they ask you, the applications ask you, do you have any of these certifications? When there was funding, business funding as a result of COVID, the folks got, who got priority were folks who also had these certifications. And so it really opens a whole different playing field. Even when you enter the corporate contracting market, which is a different ball game, there are supplier diversity vendor databases that you can list your business in. And the way that you get into those and get priority is if you have the certifications. And so they all play together from a funding perspective, a grant perspective, and a contracts perspective. And so those certifications are really important to have if this is a part of your strategy. And the really cool thing is that there are grants that will, at the local level, as well as at the national level, that will pay your certification fee. And in most states, your local business centers will actually help you submit the application. And so again, If you don't know how to do it, there are resources available to help you facilitate that process. I will say that one of the biggest barriers to people being able to secure their certifications is that their financials aren't in order. So if you don't have your profit and loss statement, if you can't get your financials certified by a third party, um, that is the part where most people get hung up is because they haven't been keeping their finances in order or they've not been keeping them separate. And so you do need to make from that perspective and think about it. We're talking about, I think our largest contract is about $6 million. You can't be mismanaging money. And then they issue a contract of that amount because unfortunately the misappropriation of funds is high in contracting, especially with government contracting. And so they're trying to mitigate some of those risks and the likelihood of you doing that with good books is is decreased. And so that's what they're doing is trying to be good stewards of taxpayer dollars. Hey there. I hope that you're enjoying today's podcast session. So I've, you know, jumped back into private practice and I decided to go the private pay route. 
And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how do I tap into outer network benefits for clients that might want to use it? Now, the common sort of perspective or tip that a lot of folks say is just to provide a super bill for clients. But the reality is, I feel like most clients aren't going to go take a super bill and then call the insurance company and then deal with that whole mess of trying to communicate with the insurance companies and waiting on reimbursement and all of that kind of stuff, right? And then at some point, especially if they're keenly aware of budget and stuff like that, they're like, oh my gosh, I may not be able to afford working with this therapist and all of those kind of things, right? This is where Thryzer comes in. And the really cool thing with Thryzer is that they will actually float the clients for the sessions. So basically, when you sign up for Thryzer, you can automatically submit out-of-network claims for your clients. It's simply done through an app. It literally takes seconds. And Thryzer takes care of all of the insurance stress. So we don't have to deal with it as clinicians. Our clients don't have to deal with it. And clients just pay what they owe for for actual sessions, i.e. like the difference between your rate and the reimbursement rate in order to skip the long insurance wait. All they have to do is pay the standard 3% credit card fee. There is no monthly contracts or fees or anything like that. If you would like to try out Thryzer, you can go to sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, enter the promo code STC so that your first $2,500 in fees are waived. Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and Thryzer is spelled T-H-R-I-Z-E-R, and enter the promo code STC. Um, but that's one of the biggest barriers that I see where people get stuck in the certification process is that they haven't been doing, um, they don't have balance and uh, profit and loss statements and balance sheets, and they've been doing all of it themselves. Again, those are things that, that you can overcome, but those are some things that may get in the way of you being able to start the process. How long do they like generally like look back? Like, is it just... Years? Usually a year. Yep. Just so usually time. when you submit your initial certification, it's for a year. There are some contracts um, like that $6 million contract, they wanted three years of our tax statements. And so they didn't ask for three years of the balance and loss, the balance sheet or the profit and loss statement, but they wanted three years of taxes. So there's some that you can't be behind on owing the IRS and receive federal grants, right? And so there's some some things you can, you can be on a payment plan and be up to date, but you can't be delinquent or in default. And so there's some things like that that you have to be mindful of. And then you absolutely have to have, depending on the size of the contract, you may need higher insurance. Mm-hmm. And so I think for most of us, we require one, three million, one million to three million. And mm-hmm. a lot of our contracts will require one to five million. So it's not huge, but it is a difference, right? And so there's those are some nuances that you may encounter that, again, you can navigate when you're in the process. And they give you some time, right, to get right. those things in order because they realize when you're starting out, you just may not have it. And so there's resources to help you with securing that additional policy if you need it. And then the insurance is like the the liability insurance, right? That, yeah. Uh, so it's often the business insurance, especially if it's a consult. It's not direct practice. If it is direct practice, yes, it's ma- malpractice. But they also require that you have business insurance, business interruption insurance, cybersecurity policies that have higher thresholds than our industry often requires, because again, you're transmitting data between government databases and things of that nature. And so they want to make sure that if there's a breach that happens, you have enough insurance to mitigate and to recover from that. 
And so those are some additional, again, another reason that subcontracting isn't a bad idea because it's the prime's responsibility to have those components in place. Is there an insurance company that like you recommend or arrange or? It varies. We've used the Hartford Group um, as we've used them for like work, workers' compensation. And now we use, I want to say Simply Insured, if I'm not mistaken, but there's quite a few. We actually just used a local broker that was actually housed in our small business, small um, our women's business center that helped us because I hadn't had to secure a policy of that size. And so I wanted to know, like, what's everyone else using? <laughs> what yeah. are the pros and cons? Because again, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so they were a really helpful guide in navigating that. And then at some point we changed, but I can't remember what it is now, right? Because now we needed, that threshold has increased with this larger contract. And so I can't even keep up with me. <laughs> um, the one thing I'm taking away is, you know, I, I feel like when you start this journey of trying to think about these contracts, it can feel very isolating, but it's always a reminder that there are local organizations and people that are like dedicated to to doing this, right? And it's like leaning into that and yeah, and using those resources. I had a couple of more questions for you. So when you're looking for contract opportunities, and I'm not even going to say like, I guess whatever path that you want to go down, uh, whether it's more like federal government or like schools, that kind of stuff. But generally when you're looking for contract opportunities, what are the like top three things that you're looking for? So I'm looking for the scope of work, right? So what are they asking for? Because I have to make sure I can staff it, right? Can we actually complete the work and can we staff it? The other thing I'm looking at are the payable terms. There are some contracts that, and I think this is one that catches a lot of folks off guard. Contracts, especially if we're talking government contracts, because corporate contracts are, I think, a little easier to navigate, but the government contracts often have longer payable terms, right? And so you deliver the work and then you invoice them. And on average, our contracts pay 45 to 60 days. That's 45 to 60 days after the work has been delivered. And so one of the things that we had to do was in the beginning, I only looked at contracts that I could fulfill because I could delay paying myself, right? But I was not going to delay paying my team. And so what I ended up doing was the first contract was much smaller. I did the parent skills training. I did the bulk of them. And then when I got my first reimbursement, then I staffed those with other people because now I had a bucket of money that I had set aside to be able to pay them while I waited for reimbursement. And so that has to be a part of the process. Corporate pays, um, I think most of our corporate contracts pay 10, 15 days. So that's not too like, you know, and difficult to kind of navigate, but mm -hmm. those government contracts, even K through 12 contracts, can have longer payable terms. And so you want to negotiate where you can. And in the beginning, I didn't know I could negotiate the payables with the local government because I was like, oh, this is what the contract says. That's what I have to accept. But I found that everything's negotiable. And so I began asking like, you know, can we do 50%, you know, at these terms and then the rest at these terms, because it allowed me to then contract other people that I could staff it because I have limited capacity, right? Regardless of all the things I'm interested in, I only have so many hours in a day and I have kids and other things, right? It also wasn't the best use of my skill set as someone that is, um, I'm the only one in the, uh, the, the organization that is the chief revenue officer. I secure the contracts. My job is to make sure that I have the people to fulfill it, right? And so the scope of work is one. The payable terms, right, is the other piece. And then I also want to look at whether or not they're renewable. I prefer longer term relationships. And so I like ones that are not, you know, three month contracts. I prefer ones that are yearly renewable. And so that is something that's important. You didn't ask this piece, but this is one that I find like super important and helpful. 
that I think people don't think to do is I also like to go and look at who won this contract in the past if it's not a new contract, right? Because it will help you with bidding on the contract because people will pay for what they have paid for. And if they've used public dollars to fund the contract, they are legally responsible for posting the winning contract, right? Um, I look at those whether or not I won the bid or not, because there's an opportunity for you to be able to recover part of that contract as a sub, right? If you didn't win as a prime, but there's a lot of things you can learn about the language. And sometimes you lose a contract because somebody underbid you. And this happened actually to one of my consulting clients. They, the only thing they didn't compete on was price. But by looking at the contract, I knew and could identify that the person that won the contract was eventually going to lose it because the way that they bid it, they couldn't actually staff it or fulfill it because they had actually not included enough overhead in order to actually carry the project out. And sure enough, we were able to recover it. I say we because I coached the person in recovering the contract. And we don't want that to happen to anyone, but we also can be strategically positioned in the event that a contract falls through. And they happen every single day. But you have to know what you're looking at and why, right? And so that's the like strategist part of my brain that kicks in that I get really jazzed about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's also wisdom of having somebody that's done this right and to be able to i mean you can look at a contract and you can say like that's not going to work out because of this factor right and yeah i'm so glad you mentioned that part there's something i was going to ask you with that's escaping me right now but maybe i'll ask this question uh what do you think is like the biggest mistake that you've seen co uh, our colleagues make as they try to like secure these contracts i know it's like a very broad question, but you know, like that top one. I think one is that they don't think they're qualified. I think that's mm. a big one, right? So they don't even go after them. And then two, if you don't know how to navigate a component, be open to partnering. Like that's the benefit of being able to, we've secured contracts and the contract that we secured with SAMHSA to train 300 FBI law enforcement officers, I didn't have all the people on my staff to fulfill the contract, but I knew enough people that had the credentials I needed to write into the contract, right? Like I would not have been able to go after that contract if I could only rely on my team. And so for me, I had to be able to go out and develop a plan and show them the folks that I knew that I could identify and how I could utilize them. And so I think far too often we only count our capacity. We don't think about the importance of partnering and what's happening. Who else is in our community? Your niche mates. Um, and so you may have a thing and they have a thing and together you qualify, but individually you may not be able to. And I think sometimes we, because we're not sure how to navigate those, we don't. And so we're looking at it and we're like, oh my God, I don't qualify. We walk away. It's like, well, who can come alongside me and do this work, right? We need a contract in place, but we don't have to compete when we can connect and collaborate and serve, especially when we have shared values and shared mission. I think that is so important. And I think we don't do that enough in the field, right? We don't do that enough. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, right? But I think that's absolutely something that happens. And I, then I think we get stuck in DIY, mm. right? Or I'll just research it. And so we get stuck in YouTube University when that we actually could just like, you know, I ask you this, like, hey, I want to do this, right? And I would rather go to someone that has done it than to try and figure it out myself. I spent half my life having figured things out because I didn't have any resources. Now I have a little bit more money than I have time. I want to go to the specialist that knows what to do. So I don't have to incur the cost of the mistakes of what I don't know again. And so I think we have to be willing to think about different ways to close the gap between where we are and where we need to be in order to go after these opportunities. And that the entry point isn't as steep as we think it is. And so we're sitting with the gap of what we don't know and we're making it bigger than it really is, right? This is 
a perfect time for mental health professionals to shine. We need you outside of the therapy room. Um, and your gifts and your skills are transferable in a variety of different settings. And so if you don't believe that's true, you won't pursue opportunities to prove that it is, right? And so that's what I would say, a roundabout yeah. way of answering that question. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a wonderful answer. And I think, yeah, just that, just that idea of like seeing what we're doing as a skill set that can be deployed in other areas beyond what we're, you know, trained to do. I think it's just, it's such a big unlock. Jed, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is, I mean, you and I have privately talked about faith and, you know, we both identify as Christian and in the context of contracts, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about alignment of faith and in the contracts that you pursue and how to, how that even, even sort of manifests, not even just maybe like in just the contracts, but like, you know, even how you interact, right? Absolutely. So it's, you know, I'm very clear that I'm a God girl and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily, I don't turn that off when I walk into corporate spaces or whatever. Um, it's just a part of who I am. Right. And so when people ask me like, oh my God, what are the keys to your success? I'm going to bring up the fact that I'm God girl. Right. I mm -hmm. fundamentally believe that it is not luck. It is favor. Right. That has been a big part of my trajectory, but it also, uh, it's a big part of my why, even when it's not a part of my how. Right. And so it is why I serve as a therapist. It's why I serve as a servant leader even when like I don't serve as a Christian counselor, right? And so I'm very clear about that piece, but it is the filter through which I um, discern whether or not certain contracts or opportunities are in alignment, right? And so if in that discernment and exposure piece, I recognize that it's disingenuous, right? Especially when I do a lot, a lot of trauma-informed work in the workplace, when it's clear to me that it's box checking, it doesn't matter what the invoice amount is because it's not going to be in alignment with the way that I um, treat people, engage with people, or do this work, right? And so for me, I still have to be discerning that, yes, and I've had opportunities that I've walked away from because they wanted me to do, you know, trauma-informed work and then not talk about white privilege. Those two don't go together when we're talking about minorities in the workplace. And so I have to be willing to say no. And the other thing is that my faith, we talked about this a bit, for me, my faith buffers against feeling of imposter syndrome or feeling like I'm missing out and I get to stay in my zone of genius because I fundamentally believe and know that the things that have been prepared for me are for me. And so I don't have to think about competing with other people. There's more than enough room. And that for me gives me, I wouldn't say not an advantage, but it gives me more comfort to uh, do less, right? And to not hustle. Like I don't have to hustle um, because there's no, I don't even have to rush, right? Because there's no traffic in my lane. Mm -hmm. It is completely clear and free. And for me, that is such a blessing, right? And so it allows me to quiet some of the outside noise of things that I see other people doing. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exciting. And I can just re-anchor in purpose, right? And, and what my faith says I've been called to do, that for me, I stand in the category of one, but I also think we all stand in the category of one because of the way that we were created, right? And so that allows me, when I'm talking to organizations or university partners or whomever it may be, um, I'm not coming from a place of scarcity. And so I don't, there are certain things I don't have to negotiate on because my faith and seeing people first, those are non-negotiables. And so for me, that's a thing that shows up in how I lead my clinical team, how we pursue contracts and even speaking engagements. And so if it's not a resounding yes in alignment, it's absolutely a no. And so that allows me to make decisions with more clarity. And those are things that don't keep me up at night. And so I feel very thankful and very blessed that that is, is an anchor for me, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for, for speaking on that. I mean, I, I told you this before we started, but like I shared it with you and 
you know, like my faith is something that I want to speak more about, you know, I and mean, I feel like sometimes even with this podcast or when I write on LinkedIn, like I don't, I kind of don't share it as much, but, but you're absolutely right. Like, you know, it impacts so much of the decisions we make and all of those kind of things. So Jed, I'm incredibly grateful for you, uh, grateful for our friendship. You are doing so much good work in the world. You've got the Purposeful and Profitable Therapist Summit that is coming up in a couple of months. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and uh, and where we can learn more about it. Absolutely. And so it is our annual conference and it focuses on diversified income, whether it's speaking, consulting, government contracting, school contracting, it is all things diversified income. And so that happens every July in our nation's capital. And so you can find out more information about that at ajetarobinson.com. And we would love, love, love to have you all. And one day I'm going to get you over there <laughs> for sure. As one of our featured speakers, I think podcasting is a wonderful way for us to kind of disrupt the space and create access, right, to knowledge in so many different ways. And so I thank you for just this platform and your dedication, right, and longevity in doing this work. Thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for you and uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Hey there. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Jetta. And especially if you have been thinking about doing more government contracts or just contracts in general, I hope that today's session has been incredibly grateful for you or incredibly helpful for you. Ahead of my brain is going faster than uh, I'm talking, apparently. But I was thinking a lot about this conversation. And the one thing that I kept coming back to is this is actually a pattern that I notice among a lot of very successful private practitioners and just generally the most successful business owners. And I'm not talking just about like from a revenue perspective, but also from a holistic success, right? They seem to generate or have businesses that generate substantial income, but then they're also doing it in alignment with other things, you know, for example, time with family and all of these kind of things, which is that they take this mindset of instead of like in, in, this, in the context of contracts, right? This is a contract that only I can secure. Instead of that way, looking at more of like who is in my ecosystem that I can work with and that I can build partnerships with, uh, not just for this current contract, but they, I guess what I'm trying to say is they really think in long runways uh, versus just in that one contract. So if you enjoyed this session, definitely check out Dr. Robinson's website over at ajetarobinson.com. Uh, Ajeta is a wonderful human being, and I'm just so incredibly uh, grateful for her. Uh, definitely connect with her. And she's got a great email list as well, an email newsletter that goes out. And uh, definitely check that out as well. Have a great rest of your day and uh, I will see you next time. Bye. Hey there. I hope that you enjoyed today's session. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to listen all the way through. If you are a therapist and you're specifically in a season where you're a seasoned therapist and you are wanting to move from clinical to online course income, we actually have a specific mastermind for therapists who are doing this. So this is basically a group of really kind and supportive therapists who are also wildly successful as business owners. And we met, we meet together uh, to build and grow and scale our online courses. You can learn more about that mastermind over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash mastermind all one word, sellingthecouch.com forward slash mastermind. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's session.